Genesis chapter 22. Sometimes later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will come and worship when we come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife as the two of them went on together. Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up. There in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time. And he said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies. And through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Then Abraham returned to his servants. and They set off together for Beersheba. And Abraham stayed in Beersheba. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks so much, Mark. 
we would usually dismiss our elementary students right now, but we're going to be doing communion here a little bit later, so we're going to have all of you stay in here with your parents, so thanks so much for doing that. The Bible is a treasure trove full of stories. I'm going to knock everything over here, guys, one second. The Bible is a treasure trove full of incredible stories, and some of the most iconic and important stories that are told again and again in our culture are from the Bible, that we use as illustrations and um, as just references in our day-to-day life here. And this is why many people, even if they do not believe in Jesus, would not call themselves religious, often still take time to read the Bible because they want to familiarize themselves with its many stories. The problem is, the Bible is not really a bunch of disconnected stories. Yes, there are many, many little stories, but it's actually one big story. And this is a pretty obvious metaphor, but the Bible operates like one large tapestry with many little threads working its way through it that we see. And so if you focus on any one of the threads and thinks that's it, you're missing out on the larger picture. If you think it's a bunch of disconnected threads, you're not going to see the tapestry. For instance, if you think the Bible is a bunch of disconnected stories, we have a tendency to make them moral tales. And so we read a story and we think, oh, here's what this person did. They made a great choice. I should do that. Or they made a bad choice. I shouldn't do that. Here's a hero I should be like. Here's a villain I shouldn't be like. It's a very normal way many people read the Bible. We bridge it to our own lives and say, I should be better. I should be more like this person or not like this person. Again, hear me, certainly there are many moral lessons for us to learn from the Bible, but if we primarily think of it as moral tales, we are missing the larger tapestry in what it is aiming to show us. Because the Bible is not primarily about you and me and what we need to do and who we are. The Bible is one cohesive story about who God is and what he has come to do to bring salvation to the world. It is about him. That's what we have to see. There's a phenomenal Bible study author named Nancy Guthrie. She puts this incredibly well. So just let me read her words for us here this morning. She says, If we read the Bible, assuming that we are expected to follow in the footsteps of those who are featured in its pages, we will find ourselves always trying harder to sacrifice and obey, but never measuring up. We'll assume that God asks us to do things that will make us miserable just to put us through a test of our allegiance, diminishing rather than magnifying God in our hearts. But when we read the Bible, recognizing that it is not about what we must do for him, but about what he has done for us through Christ, rather than being offended by what we fear he may ask of us, we find rest in what he has done for us. Love her words. We could just wrap up right there. I think that's clear enough what I hope to share today. In other words, we are meant to read the Bible with eyes of grace, eyes for grace, seeing again and again who God is and what he has done for us, about God's character, about God's faithfulness. So we've been in a series just starting here called Grace Upon Grace. Grace Upon Grace. What what is so amazing about grace? Why is this so needed for our hearts? Why is this such a prominent word 
in Christian theology. And to understand grace more deeply, we are going back to the very first book of the Bible, Genesis, and we're looking at how God interacts with people in the second half of Genesis. And this is important because even here, at the very start of the Bible, God is dropping hint after hint of what he is ultimately one day going to do for us in Jesus. So even here at the beginning, we see these threads tying into the whole tapestry. And if there's any story that we really need to see this in, it's Genesis 22. That people get confused by, that we really need to see is about God and what he's come to do for us. So I know you just heard Mark Watney read this for us, but again, please open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 22. I'm going to be retelling this story that was just read for you. I want to draw out again what God is speaking here for us. So Genesis chapter 22, we're going to start in verse 1. As the story begins, it says that sometime later, God tested Abraham. Now we should see that there's already some progress here from when we were last looking at Genesis because then we were looking at a guy named Abram, and now suddenly he's got the name Abraham. So what happened here? We've got to go back and realize that God called Abram to leave the country he grew up in, to leave the land and family he is familiar with, and to follow God to a new land. And Abram does. And God also gives Abram this huge promise. He says, I will make you into a great nation. Even better than that, through you, through your offspring, Abram, I'm going to bless all the peoples in the world. God's rescue mission is somehow woven through Abram and his offspring. This hard, difficult part, though, with this promise is that Abram and his wife Sarai have no children. More than that, Abram at this time, we know, is 75 years old, and his wife, Sarai, is 66. This is not the time for starting a nation, right? They are past their childbearing years, so how is this promise going to be fulfilled through them? Wondering this, Abram and Sarai take matters into their own hands, and Sarai gives her servant, slave, Hagar, to Abram to sleep with, that they could start a nation through her, perhaps. Hagar does conceive, and she gives birth to a son named Ishmael. But this is not the child that God had in mind. So although he still blesses Ishmael, still says he's going to make him into a great people, this is not what God had in mind. He's still waiting for another son to come. We shared last week, it's 25, I mean crazy, 25 long years that God makes Abram and Sarai wait before he finally does what he promised, before he finally gives them this son of the promise named Isaac. Finally, they have this boy that they've been waiting for. And as a reminder of God's faithfulness to them, that he always keeps his word, God changes their names from Abram to Abraham and Sarai to Sarah. They are new people, people of his promise. So this is where we are now in chapter 22. Ishmael, Isaac has been born. The promise has arrived. They're so happy. But notice then what God commands here in verse 2. Have it on a slide here for you. It says this. God commands this in verse 2. 
He says, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. This has to be one of the most shocking verses in the entire Bible. What, what in the world just happened here? But one, this is strange because Isaac is the son of the promise. He's the one that God said he would bring. He wasn't Abram or Sarai's idea. Isaac was God's idea. Why does he want him sacrificed now? More than that, he had Abram and Sarai wait 25 years for this son just to take him. Even more than that, what's going on with God's character that he would ask Abram and Sarah to sacrifice their son? The faithful, gracious, loving God? This is more what we would expect from the gods of the nations around Abraham, like Molech, who demanded children to be sacrificed to them. This is not what we expect from the God of the Bible. So what in the world is happening in this story? Well, if we remember that the Bible is not a bunch of disconnected stories, but one big story, as Sally Lloyd-Jones loves to put it, one big story about what God has come to do for us, we should be on the lookout for hints of what he is doing. So notice several hints already in this verse about what God is going to one day do. The first one here that I want you to notice is that he says, take your one and only son. Your one and only son. Now, isn't this strange? Because we just shared that Abraham already has another son named Ishmael. Is this a mistake in the text? Do things get mixed up? Why is he talking about Isaac now as his one and only son? Many comment that in the chapter just before this, Sarah wants Ishmael kicked out of the family because she sees Ishmael as competition for her son Isaac and his inheritance. So Sarah gets Abraham to disown and send off Ishmael and his mom, Hagar. Sends them out because she doesn't want any competition for her son Isaac. So in a sense, Abraham has disowned and he no longer is legally the father of Ishmael. But this may be true for Abraham, this may be true for Sarah and other people around them, that now he only has one son, Isaac, but God's the one speaking here. And God knows Ishmael is still Abraham's son. God is still intending to bless Ishmael because he is Abraham's son. So why is he referring to Isaac as the one and only son? Again, we have to see that Isaac is the true son of the promise. God says this back in Genesis 21, verse 12. He says, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is through Isaac that I'm going to bring my promised blessing to the whole world. So yes, he, he is the one and only true son of the promise. This is what's being highlighted for us. Secondly, notice how in this command, how much it slows down around this description of Isaac. And it lands on him as the beloved son. Notice this again. It says in uh, verse 2 here of Genesis chapter 22. Highlights your one and only beloved son, Isaac. Very interestingly, this is the first time 
the common Hebrew word for love is used in the Bible. It's here. We're 22 chapters into the Bible, and the common word for love has not yet been used until now, in this sentence. And isn't it interesting that the first time love is used in the Bible, it's used to describe the love of a father for his son in a moment of sacrifice. Where's this pointing? Thirdly here, another clue is that it says, take him to the region of Moriah. The region of Moriah. What is this? If we don't know our Bible geography, you had to learn this as well. At this moment, we know in the previous chapter that Abraham is living in a town called Beersheba, which is far in the south. It's not a mountainous area. It's more in the desert, in the wilderness. And we know later that Abraham and Isaac and his servants, they're going to walk three days to get to this region of Moriah. A three-day walk from Beersheba will get you up into the Judean mountains where Jerusalem is located. So it's very fascinating that in 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1, later in Scripture, it highlights for us where this region of Moriah is more exactly. It says, Then Solomon began to build the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem on, you see this, Mount Moriah. So God is telling Abraham to take his son to the region of Mount Moriah, and he's going to show him a specific mountain near there that he wants him to sacrifice his son, Isaac. It's good to sit in this with me. God, because he knows all things, is weaving one cohesive story about what he will one day do, and he's dropping hint after hint, clues, to show us what he will one day do. So here in this story, we have a one and only beloved son who is told to be taken to a mountain outside Jerusalem to be a sacrifice. I wonder what God is doing. Do you see this? And just as shocking as this command from God in verse 2, it's also very surprising to see how Abraham reacts says this in verse 3 for us. It says, early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey and he took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. Abraham does not hesitate. He does not postpone for a day or for a week. But early the next morning, he wakes up, cuts the wood that's necessary for this sacrifice, loads up his donkey and sets out with his son and whose two servants. He is quick, shockingly quick to obey. As they set off and they do this three-day walk that I mentioned to this region of Mount Moriah, they, Abraham sees the location in the distance. And he says to his servants, stay here, and the boy and I will go on together, and we will worship, and then we will come back. And so Abram, Abraham and Isaac they begin to go up the mountain. And Abraham lays the wood for the sacrifice on Isaac's back. And they begin to walk up. And Abraham has the fire and he has the knife. And Isaac has the wood on his back. And Isaac is a very observant son. And he, he asks father. And Abraham says, yes, my son. Seems that again and again the text, it can't emphasize enough this loving father-son relationship. And Isaac asks, we have the wood, and we have the fire, and we have the knife, but where is the lamb 
for the sacrifice. We're clearly missing a pretty important thing for this. Abraham says to his son, God himself will provide for us. He will provide a lamb for us. And they continue on their way up the mountain together. This is odd because God did not tell Abraham at any point in this story that he actually would provide for him. Is Abraham lying? Is he deceiving his son to keep him quiet and compliant on the journey up the mountain? Why does Abraham say this? It seems, hear me, that Abraham does not know exactly what's going to happen. But he does know the character of God. He does not know exactly how this is going to be resolved, but he's certain somehow this is going to end with Isaac still being alive because God is gracious and he's faithful to his promises. And we have to understand Abraham's whole life has been building up to this moment that he's been called to trust God and to follow him and Abraham has failed again and again and again. He failed to trust God that he would protect him and his wife, Sarah. He failed to trust God that he would actually give him a son, and he tried things on his own. He fails on multiple occasions to truly trust God, and I think he has finally seen that God is still being gracious to me. God is still being faithful, even though I mess things up again and again and again. I think he's finally getting it grounded in his heart This promise is going to happen not because of me, but because of the God that I serve. I have a faithful, gracious God, and even though I might mess it all up all the time, this is on his shoulders. So after a lifetime of mistakes and failures and a lack of trust, why, why not trust God now? Why not in this moment say, I think I finally get it, that even if I don't understand and I want to make my own secondary option be routes, I can trust you to keep your promise. This is why he thought that even though God was able to give him a son when his body was as good as dead, perhaps God could even raise his son from the dead. It says this in Hebrews chapter 11 later, a commentary about what's going on. In Abraham's heart. Interestingly, it says, By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. (laughs) He who had embraced the promises, I love this, he embraced them, was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, It is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. So again, look at what this hint that God is giving us here. He has a beloved one and only son walking up a mountain outside of Jerusalem, carrying on his back the wood for his own sacrifice. What could God be planning? What could he be setting into motion? So obedience is not yet complete. It says that when Abraham and Isaac reach the top, they reach their location the story suddenly slows down. And we see verb after verb describing almost in slow motion this action from Abraham. It says that he built an altar. He arranged the wood on top of it. Then he bound his son Isaac and laid him on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached for his knife and was a 
In the old King James, it says, Jehovah Jireh, the Lord, he is the provider. Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. Here at the end of the story, God emphasizes his blessing once yet again to Abraham because of his obedience. What good news for us. What encouragement to our hearts. However, I have to say again, as people hear this story, this is very disturbing to them as it might be to many of you. That here we got, have God giving Abraham a test, and at the end of the test he says, now I finally know that you fear me and you won't withhold from me your one and only son. And so because of this, many people read this story and we think God is similarly testing our hearts. That God wants us to put on the altar of our lives what is most precious to us. And that he's going to test us that way. And if we don't pass that test, if we don't give him what's most precious to us, that we will fail the test and not be in relationship with him, we will miss out on the blessing. So everyone reads the story and feels the weight that I better be like Abraham. I better pass this test. But would you hear with me one more time? Again, Nancy Guthrie writes this so well. Let me read for us maybe a better way to see this story. She says this. Why would God ask Abraham to offer his son as a sacrifice? Is God trying to teach us that we should be willing to sacrifice what is most precious to us? No. The story is not recorded to inspire sacrifice to God. Instead, it paints in vivid colors the sacrifice of God. The point of this story is not to convince you that you must be willing to sacrifice to God what is most precious to you, but rather to prepare you to take in the magnitude of the gift when you see that God was willing to sacrifice what was most precious to him, his own beloved son, for you. So yes, God does test our hearts. Yes, God does call us to trust him. But unless we see that this is ultimately about God and the sacrifice he will make for us, we are missing the beauty of this story. We are missing out on what God is looking to teach us. Because hear me, God knew before the foundation of the world what he would one day do for us in Jesus. Before time began, he had in mind this plan of redemption and how he was going to save the world. And this is why in his divine creativity, he weaves together story after story, dropping clue after clue of who he is and what he will one day do to redeem us in Jesus. Do you see this? And this is why God planned that Isaac would be a promised and impossible son. Because he knew that one day he would bring an even more true and impossible son as Jesus was born by a virgin named Mary. And not a son that they waited for just for 25 years, but people had waited for for decades and generations. This is why God planned that Isaac would be a beloved son. He would be beloved because he knew that he would one day send his one and only beloved son. And he would speak to Jesus, you are my son whom I love. You are my dearest. And this is why God had planned that Isaac would be an obedient, faithful son, carrying up that mountain, the wood for his own sacrifice on his back, because he knew 
that one day in Jesus, we would truly see the obedient son. Not one that obeys, not seeing the whole picture, but that Jesus with the father had known from all eternity exactly what would take place. That he is fully God and that he is fully in cooperation with this plan and he is fully and willingly offering himself for us. He is the true and obedient son who carried on his own back the wood of the cross for his sacrifice. Do you see this? And that again, God planned that Isaac, when the moment he was about to be sacrificed, God would bring a ram as a substitute for him because he knew for us that Jesus would come and that he would be a substitute for you and I. That we would look up and see him on the cross and say, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You are the true lamb. You are the true substitute. And you did not stop your hand with him. That truly the punishment that brought us peace was laid on him. Here again, this is why a mountain outside of Jerusalem was named the Lord will provide. Because God knew that one day in Jesus, he would come, walk up that mountain, and he would be crucified. Because on that cross, he is providing salvation for the world. On that cross, he is providing forgiveness and reconciliation for the world. Our God knew all along exactly what he would do in Jesus for the redemption of the world. And this story of Abraham, he is trying to show us his heart and his character and his faithfulness. So again, yes, we should trust God. Amen. We should trust God with everything, even though it might cost us. But please hear me. If you hear this story and you think that you must pass the test in order for you to be accepted by God, if you feel like you must pass the test in order for God to bring blessing on your life, we both need to hear, we have already failed the test. Let us be honest with you. You and I have already failed the test. We did not pass. We have already broken faith with God. We have already sinned. We have already fallen short of his glory and tried to find our delight and our life in things that are not him. We have already failed the test. This is about one who did pass the test. This is about Jesus Christ who came and lived a perfect life, completely righteous. This is about Jesus Christ who in the garden fully knowing the night before his crucifixion crucifixion, exactly what this would cost him. And in that moment, he did not stop, but he endured the cross for you and I. And again, no hand, no voice cried out, stopping his execution. He passed the test and was faithful all of the way. So hear me, as you see Genesis 22, we are rejoicing that another has passed this test for us. I did not have the character. I did not have the faithfulness. I did not have the perseverance. I did not have the sight to trust God, but I tell you, Jesus Christ did. And he has given me his righteousness. He has given me his record. Do you see the grace of God in the story? Do you see grace upon grace upon grace? of what God is telling us about himself, that he wants us to see his character and what he is coming to do for us in Jesus. 
we're going to take communion here in just a little bit, that we would 